You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Greetings, everyone. Well, here we are, the final session of what has been a remarkable series celebrating the life and work of Stanislav Grof. I'm Peter Maravellis. I'm the events director at City Lights. On behalf of City Lights booksellers and publishers, and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to session three of our celebration. It's titled Comparative and Theoretical Studies, Current Applications and Future Paradigms of Therapeutic Practice. This event is being presented by City Lights in conjunction with MAPS and Synergetic Press as we inaugurate the publication of their new book, Psyche Unbound, Essays in Honor of Stanislav Grof, It's edited by Richard Tarnas and Sean Kelly and published by MAPS with Synergetic Press. MAPS is a 501c nonprofit research and educational organization founded in 1986 that develops medical, legal, and cultural contexts for people to benefit from the careful uses of psychedelics and marijuana. Synergetic Press is an independent publisher that for over 35 years has been producing books to promote mindful discussions of humankind's present and future lives. They have published unique and paradigm shifting ideas and subjects such as ecology, sustainability, psychedelics, consciousness and cultural studies that inspire both individual and social change. As we begin the final session today, I'd like to acknowledge that this event is being broadcast from the site of the ancestral homelands of the Ramatushaloni peoples. On the peninsula where I stand, eight different dialects of their language were once spoken. It is with respect to those who came before us that I would like to begin our weekend event, actually, and our weekend event, I should say, and offer a moment of silence to stand in recognition of the place we occupy. And also to recognize how many of us attending possess a privilege that many in the world do not. It is in honor of compassion, understanding, and empathy that I request that we stand as witness to those who are presently suffering in the world. And that we consider that we close this event in the spirit of equity, justice, and equal opportunity for all. A special thanks goes out to our co-sponsors of this weekend sessions. They are organizations that are at the forefront of pharmacological advocacy, transpersonal psychology, and research. A spirited thanks to the California Institute of Integral Studies, TAM Integration, Psychedelic Seminars, the Esalen Institute, Psychedelic Society UK, Psychedelics Today, and Double Blind Magazine. This program could never have been realized without the collective efforts of a great many people. It would be difficult to list all of them, but first and foremost, a huge debt goes out to MAPS and Synergetic Press. I'd like to pay our respects to Rick Doblin and his colleagues for carrying on really an important legacy. Um, This collaboration with Synergetic continues their commitment to advocacy and research in the field of psychedelics and transpersonal technologies. A huge thanks is also due to Deborah Parrish Snyder, the publisher of Synergetic Press based in Santa Fe, New Mexico. For over 35 years, they've been publishing really amazing work. City Lights is honored to be working with them once again as we've collaborated on numerous wonderful events. A special thanks goes to to Sandy Balin, to Jasmine Virdi, Lisa Newcomb, Doug Rail, 
Thank you for all your efforts. Uh, before we begin, I'd like to let you know we're posting links in the chat function of your Zoom dashboard with which you may purchase copies of Psyche Unbound. Uh, we are out of signed copies, regretfully, but it is still a really, really beautiful, beautiful edition. So a lovely, lovely book. Also, I'd like to take a moment to thank Jesse and his colleagues at Ozo Conferencing for their generosity and producing the really wonderful virtual environment that uh, we've been meeting in, in between the sessions. Uh, they'll be open at the end of this session as well. So pop on in and let's all party virtual. You may also post questions and comments for our speakers using the chat function of your Zoom dashboard. So hopefully, you know, we should have some time for Q&A at the end. So our moderator for this session will be Maria Victoria Mangini. Uh, she has been a family nurse midwife for 25 years. Her academic interest has been the historiography of psychedelics, and she has written extensively on the impact of psychedelic experiences in shaping the lives of her contemporaries. She has worked closely with many of the most distinguished investigators in this field. She completed her doctorate in community health nursing at UCSF, where her research centered on drug use and drug policy. Currently, she is the director of the MSN FNP program at Holy Names University in Oakland. She has 31 years of experience in family practice and women's health, including 22 years with the primary care practice of Dr. Frank Lucindo, one of the pioneers of medical cannabis movement. Uh, their practice was one of the first to implement the Compassionate Use Act of 1996 when it became law. Her current project is the development of a thanatology program for the study of death and dying. Joining her on the panel will be Tom Redlinger. Mr. Redlinger is a licensed professional counselor and group therapist in the inpatient psychiatry unit at the Providence St. Peter Hospital in Olympia. Graduating with a master's degree in theological studies and world religions from Harvard, he served three years and is an associate in ethnomycology at Harvard Botanical Museum under the auspices of his mentor, Richard Evans Schultes. Mr. Redlinger was elected a fellow of the Linnean Society of London and is an active member of PEN America. His two published books are The Sacred Mushroom Seeker, Essays for R. Gordon Wasson, and Mortal Refrains, the collected works of 19th century Michigan poet Julia A. Moore. He also has uh, written and published hundreds of articles and essays in academic journals, newspapers, and magazines, as well as chapters and anthologies pertaining to cultural uses of psychoactive plants. They will be also joined by Thomas B. Roberts. Mr. Roberts promotes the legal adaption of psychedelics for multidisciplinary intellectual uses, primarily their academic and spiritual implications. He is a founding member of uh, Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, MAPS, a co-founder of the Council on Spiritual Practices and the International Transpersonal Association, and originating the rising researcher sessions for the 2008 Basal Psychedelic Conferences. And he is also known to have launched the celebration of Bicycle Day, April 19th, to commemorate the day that Albert Hoffman first intentionally took LSD. So also joining our panel again, Diana Hogg. Ms. Hogg is well known in the Groff community as a longtime teacher of Dr. Groff's work and leading facilitator of holotropic breathwork workshops in many contexts and in many different countries. She has taught and led training events under the umbrella of Groff transpersonal training for three decades. Ms. Hogg has maintained a strong interest in applying holotropic principles within a wide variety of cultural contexts, including social and environmental activism, women's leadership, 
transformational education and gender equity and reconciliation. Since 2016, she has taught Dr. Roth's theoretical work and supported experiential breathwork sessions through the Center for Psychedelic Therapy and Research Certification Program at the California Institute of Integral Studies. Diane Hogg is currently serving as director of the 2021 CIIS CPTR Mentoring Program and as founder and director of the Groff Legacy Project USA. She is developing programs supporting those training for roles as psychedelic therapists and sitters. We're going to be posting links uh, for the Legacy Project, so please do check that out. There'll be links for both the U.S. and the international uh, versions. So, and also with us today is Jasmine Verdi. Jasmine is a freelance writer operating in the psychedelic space. Since 2018, she has been working with, for Synergetic Press, where her passions for ecology, ethnobotany, and psychoactive substances all converge. She has written for Psychedelics Today, the Chikruna Institute for Plant Medicines, Lucid News, and Cosmic Sister, to name a few. She is currently pursuing an MSc in Spirituality, Consciousness, and Transpersonal Psychology at the LF Trust with the future aim of working as a therapeutic practitioner within the psychedelic context. Additionally, she is a volunteer at Fireside Project's Psychedelic Peer Support Line, aligned with her mission to provide compassionate, accessible, and culturally responsive support to all. Uh, recognized for her work, Jasmine was included in the 40 Under 40 Outstanding BIPOC Leaders in Drug Policy by Students for Sensible Drug Policy. Jasmine's goal as an advocate for psychedelics and plant medicines is to raise awareness for the socio-historical context in which the substances emerge in order to help integrate them in our modern day lives in an ethically integral, accessible, and meaningful way. And also joining the panel is John Buchanan, he is a trained and certified holotropic breathwork practitioner who studied under Stanislav Grof and Christina Grof. Currently, he is writing a book based upon his continuing interests in process philosophy and transpersonal psychology. Dr. Buchanan also serves as president of the Helios Foundation. His new book, Processing Reality, Finding Meaning in Death, Psychedelics and Sobriety, will be available in May of 2022. So please welcome now Maria Victoria Mangini to moderate this final session. Welcome. Thank you, Peter. I'm very grateful to be here. Uh, it's an interesting position to be um, bringing, the, bringing an end to this really remarkable group. I think it's been described already today as an impressive group of highly accomplished people. And uh, it's, it's uh, typical of the kind of vortexical energy that Stan Groff has always displayed that draws people who are both interested in his ideas and productive of ideas of their own into his orbit. So um, I'm very happy to be able to participate with all of you today, those of you who are here on the panel with me and those of you who are out there in internet space um, participating as well. Um, although our charge for this panel is to really look at the future and how Stan's work will be applied going forward, I feel like um, I'd like to say a little bit about the past, largely because Stan has had such a profound impact on my personal and professional life. I was born in the exact middle of the last century, and so it was kind of a natural thing that in my adolescence and young adulthood, I had a kind of self-definition of my capabilities as a, an activist for different kinds of social change. It was part of the social environment into which I was born. But I was also raised in a fairly religious and focused Catholic worker family. So, so social activism was sort of part of my 
my inheritance from my family of origin. I also, because of the timing, I had abundant opportunities for what Stan has called unsupervised self-experimentation with psychedelics. And surprisingly, they provided a certain amount of uh, really unmistakable resonance with my religious education. So instead of thinking I was losing my mind, I thought I was actually approaching God through the experiences that I had with non-ordinary states of consciousness when I was still quite a youngster. Um, Through a combination of good luck and fortunate positioning, I found myself in the orbit of a number of extremely adept psychedelic teachers and practitioners. And through a a series of really rather remarkable and wonderful coincidences, which I won't um, give too much detail to right now, I found myself at Esalen um, in 1975. I met Rick Tarnas there at that time. I met Stan and his then wife, Joan Halifax, at, uh, slightly before that, when my teacher, who had discovered their work with dying patients, brought them to talk with a group of his students. And I was very captivated by the work that they were doing. I had a close relative who was dying at the time, and it was the intersection of my major interest in psychedelics and the immediacy of my family circumstances. So I was able to go to a project that they were presenting at Esalen. And I, after that project, I, I tried as hard as I could not to have to leave. So I was there after I was involved in six or seven long projects that were done at the Esalen Institute in the subsequent years. And I got a chance to do um, a certain kind of service work that made it possible for me to experience a lot of really amazing and important teachings. My job was mostly to take the teacups out of the dishwasher, but I also put on a number of fanciful dinners. Uh, Stan and I cooked our way through the Salvador Dali cookbook with dishes that were named things like strawberries, breasts of Venus. And I was really immersed in the energy of people who uh, knew how to work with people who were in liminal states. It was also at this time that Stan was finishing Realms of the Human Unconscious. And so the cartography that was represented in which the biologic experience of birth was understood in a certain way was very coincident with the thinking of the times Frederick Le Boyer was beginning right just about then to see childbirth through the eyes of babies. And it became clear to me that birth could be a a kind of templating experience that would determine to some extent what kind of life people would have subsequent to their biologic experience of being born and also to some extent of giving birth. You know, this was the time when we still held wet newborns up by the heels and smacked them on the behind to start them breathing. And this was also the beginning of changing that. And I really believed that the opportunity to change the environment of birth to be less violent and less brutal would bring about a similar change in society as people didn't get their first introduction to human life in a way that was violent and brutalizing. So I determined that I would become a midwife and I did do that. And it has kind of shaped everything that I've done subsequently as a professional. It also really gave me a practical opportunity in the society in which I was presently living to do work that was directed at those experiences of liminality. And like many midwives, my focus has changed as I've aged. I appreciate very much the skills that midwives bring to birth 
the skills that people who are guide therapists and sitters for people in non-ordinary mm -hmm. states of consciousness bring to those experiences, and the, the, the skills that people who work in the environment of death bring to the environment of death. So I'm very, I'm, I'm extremely grateful to stand for setting my foot upon the path, for making me aware of the, of the trust that it's possible to place in the inner healer, to um, introducing me to reverence and support for the ways in which people can move through episodes of liminality in a very productive way, and for essentially getting me here today. So thank you, Dr. Groff. And um, I'm very, very grateful to be a part of this book launch and this project in general. And after having said all of that about myself, I'd like to turn the opportunity to um, be the center here over to, to Tom Riedlinger, who I am only just becoming acquainted with, but I think I'm gonna know you better, Tom, because you're gonna join the, the next cohort of students at the California Institute of Integral Studies in the Certificate in Psychedelic Assisted Therapies and Research. And I look forward to seeing you in the classroom after having had the opportunity to read a lot of your work throughout the years. Thank you, Maria. Very kind of you. I should mention also that my wife, Beverly Jenden Riedlinger, is going to be joining me in that cohort. And so she's a chaplain, right? That is correct. The, the, the program was seeking chaplains, and uh, she, she's very interested in, in pursuing this. Sorry about that. Um, I'd also like to join you, Maria and, and uh, Peter, in acknowledging with gratitude uh, MAPS, City Lights, and also Synergetic Press for, uh, for publishing the book, and also very much uh, gratitude for uh, the opportunity to sit with these uh, august fellow panel members, uh, including my dear old friend, the affable Tom Roberts. <laughs> he's laughing because I've used that term before, and he. Uh, <laughs> It, but it absolutely fits in. Uh, my, my topic is going to be uh, the paper that's published in Psyche Unbound on John Paul Sartre's uh, Unpleasant Mescaline ex Experience of 1935 and uh, what the implications of reports of that session are for understanding Sartre's uh, personal autobiography. It, uh, I don't have a lot to say about how it influenced his philosophy. Uh, although there are connections, but uh, I wanted to keep the focus in this case on uh, basically the kind of material and analysis that would uh, probably apply if he were going through a uh, holotropic uh, breathwork session or uh, perhaps even a, a full-blown LSD therapy session. Uh, to talk about myself a bit first, I um, had a, a somewhat wayward childhood. I was lacking in self-confidence and self-discipline. And in fact, graduated in the lower fifth of my class, high school class. If I, if I had only not tried a little harder, I would have been in the lower 10th. But uh, lower fifth was bad enough. I, I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with my life going forward. Uh, I considered a number of, um, of possibilities, a writer, a cartoonist, a doctor, a lawyer, mostly it came down to whether I might be a writer or an artist. But uh, at that point in, in 1968, I didn't see any possibility of going on to college from high school. So uh, even though it was the height of the Vietnam War, I opted to enlist in the Air Force for four years. Within that first year of being in the Air Force, I uh, had my first psychedelic experience. 
It was when I was home on leave and I ran into an old friend of mine who was in college. And we started talking about uh, the, the drug scene and LSD. And I told him that uh, I felt curious about LSD uh, as I was not curious about say marijuana. I hadn't tried that either yet. And I told him that if uh, I had a chance to try it, I probably would. And he produced a tablet from his pocket, uh, <laughs> offered it to me and he told me uh, that's a two-way hit. You know what that means, don't you? Well, I didn't, but I didn't want to seem naive. So I told him, oh, sure, yeah. And I swallowed it. A two-way hit, as I'm sure everyone here knows, means that it was a, a double dose of LSD. And it was a, each dose was already strong enough, but it was probably equivalent to at least 250 milligrams, micrograms, excuse me. And uh, I had a profound experience. It, it pretty much leapfrogged over the psychodynamic and went straight into the transpersonal realms. Uh, it, had, uh, it was referential, I think, mostly to what Huxley called the perennial philosophy. Gave me an enormous amount of insight into cosmos. And it also uh, kind of recalibrated my sense of self-confidence and uh, put me on a path toward greater self-discipline. So I, I did stay in the Air Force. I completed my enlistment. But starting from that first experience at the end of 1968 through the 70s, I probably took uh, psychedelics, mostly LSD, about 200 times. And I found in the process that it was bringing up uh, psychodynamic material as well as occasionally I would touch base with the transpersonal realm. And I wanted to try to make some sense out of it, but I wasn't seeing a therapist at the time. So uh, I began to delve into the literature and found there was almost nothing accessible to me that would explain the therapeutic process of psychedelic assisted therapy. However, the exception was Stan Groff's work. I read uh, between 1975 when, um, uh, the, when Realms of the Human Unconscious came out, I read it, I devoured it. And then I read uh, in quick succession after that, uh, The Human Encounter with Death and then LSD psychotherapy, which brought me up to about 1980 or 81. What I experienced doing that was what Paul Groff referred to as self-healing or an experience of self-regulating. And even though I wasn't in formal therapy, I felt it helped resolve a lot of the issues that I'd experienced growing up. And it put my feet on a firmer path toward uh, trying to accomplish more than I'd originally set out expecting to do. Uh, so I began to go to college and in 1981, I enrolled in a uh, philosophy class at Northwestern University. I was living at the time near Chicago and um, I decided to put in for an extra credit paper in that class and proposed, uh, well, I had two proposals, but one of them was something I called chemical contingency, Jean-Paul Sartre's mescaline experience. I had learned about it reading a book by Sartre's uh, lifelong companion and fellow philosopher, Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, the book was The Prime of Life, where she talks about the masculine experience somewhat, but uh, I, I found out a lot more about it in a book by Hazel Barnes, who is probably the ranking world expert on Sartre's uh, form of philosophy, French existentialism. She, in fact, translated being and nothingness into English. And anyone who's seen that book has, would have to be impressed by that. It's a, it's a 
intellectually dense book, but it, it quite thick as well. And, and she did a superb job in the translation and an excellent job writing a book called The Existentialist Ethics or Unexistentialist Ethics, uh, in which she drew out the implications of, of uh, Sartre's philosophy for um, determining an ethical course. It's actually harder than you would think. Um, at any rate, as I delved into those books and Sartre's autobiography of his childhood, I began to recognize a lot of uh, descriptions that sounded like a full-blown psychedelic session, which Simone de Beauvoir acknowledged, and so did Hazel Barnes. Uh, it happened in 1935 when Sartre was a, a college philosophy professor and feeling that his career wasn't going to go anywhere and, and he was isolated and alone. And uh, at that exactly that point, he agreed to have a friend give him an injection of mescaline. The mescaline experience was clearly very unpleasant for him. He attributed it to, in effect, set and setting, that the person who gave him the injection told him what it does to you is terrible. And he was he got the injection in a, um, in a rather sterile hospital room. But he claimed later that it was an entirely unpleasant experience, but it clearly was the um, uh, inspiration for the key scenes in his first published book, and his, uh, which was his world-class novel, Nausea. So that was pretty much what struck me. And I was toying with this idea. And about that time happened to meet Tom Roberts. It was in October of 1981. And I found right away, some mutual friends introduced us when I came out to DeKalb, Illinois, where Tom is a professor. And I uh, told him about this research I was doing for my class paper. And I found out that he was not only also a big fan of Groff's work, but knew Groff personally. And uh, I asked him if he would mind taking a look at my paper. So uh, what I found first of all about Tom is how absolutely helpful he is to anybody who asks for it. I was looking through my archives and I found this letter he sent <laughs> Careful, single space typing and handwriting on both sides, full of great comments and suggestions, and ultimately also suggesting I might want to run it past Groff. So uh, he gave me the address to send it to. I sent it to Stan, and then Stan responded and you know, in a very helpful way suggested that um, that the conc my conclusion in that paper was not correct. Uh, Sartre. Um, the, the, the story, if you haven't read Naj, is about a uh, person who's uh, 30 years old, as Sartre was when he took the masculine, who's also a college uh, philosophy professor. He feels his life is going nowhere, and he uh, takes the, uh, he, he doesn't take masculine, but he suddenly starts to feel overcome by bouts of nausea and a sense that everything is becoming uh, kind of disconnected from a sense of meaning. And at the key point in the book, he stares into a, uh, he enters a park in La Havre, France, and he's sitting beside a huge chestnut tree into which he suddenly recognizes kind of the focus of the sense of meaningless for all things in the world. And it's very devastating to him, but he goes on to describe how that uh, recognition unfolds in a manner that clearly suggests birth trauma. So uh, the, uh, 
my feeling was that he had on the mescaline undergone a full sequence of uh, birth trauma stages, in other words, Stan Groff's BPM stages, and in the end achieved some resolution of this um, of his of his career difficulties. Stan said he felt that uh, on reading it that he in fact did not achieve a resolution. And uh, I have two early versions of the paper that end with the idea that he did. And then the third one that I finally finished and submitted to the Journal of Transpersonal Psychology ends quite differently. And I believe correctly that he managed to somehow come to terms with the lingering effects of his uh, mescaline session, but uh, really never resolved this underlying problem, which I argued was a manifestation of, of coax systems and especially uh, an underlying connection to the BPM2 stage. Uh, so I, I don't wanna drag this out too much, but I know some people had an interest in what uh, Simone de Beauvoir thought, might've thought of this paper and also Hazel Barnes, both of whom were still alive at the time I finished it and I sent it to them. And uh, de Beauvoir said, uh, she said she read with great interest uh, my paper on Sartre I'm not in agreement with you on everything, but on the whole, yes. The rational explanations of Barnes and myself are totally insufficient. Thank you for having sent it to me. She doesn't explain it further, but Hazel Barnes did, I think, and I, I think this is worth reading. It's not too long. She said, I enjoyed reading the article and feel that I have learned from it. To me, the most important and convincing part of your article is the way that you use the negative coax to relate various episodes or reactions in Sartre's life and to unite them over a period of time. And the connection with nausea is illuminating too. I have to confess, however, that I don't think it helps very much to introduce the connection with a stage of birth trauma. Even if it were true, what difference would it make to our understanding of Sartre? And it introduces the totally fanciful to what is otherwise sound evidence for the way Sartre worked and perhaps others of us as well. You won't agree with this, of course, uh, but uh, I couldn't quite follow you in this last step all the same. I found your paper not only fascinating, but important. So my takeaway was that they actually agreed with the um, unspooling of the emerging memories from childhood, which were traumatic, and, but they, they did not think that there likely was an underlying uh, BPM. Um, I was motivated by that to write the next paper I ever published, which was called Taking Birth Trauma Seriously, where I just tried to make a case for uh, birth trauma memories being most likely, it seemed to me, hybrid memories based on uh, sort of somatic imprints that uh, when, when uh, activated in later life acquire psychological content retroactively. So they're neither pure somatic memories nor purely psychological memories or fantasies, but something in between. I, I think I've about used up my time here. So I, I will just mention that after that uh, paper came out, it, it did lead to some significant changes in my life. I continued to write papers and publish them on topics related to psychedelics, more specifically psychoactive plants. Uh, I completed my bachelor's degree at Northwestern I then went on to Harvard and got a degree there in uh, 
theological studies and world religions. And while there also, I, um, I made the acquaintance of uh, Richard Evans Schultes, the director of the Botanical Museum, uh, at, at about the same time that I initiated uh, a book, I did a fest trip, or I, I initiated and um, compiled and edited a fest trip rather like the one we're looking at here for Stan for uh, R. Gordon Wasson called The Sacred Mushroom Seeker. And those two, the, the, uh, the Sartre paper and, that, uh, and the Sacred Mushroom Seeker became in effect calling cards for me and opened a lot of doors uh, I was fortunate over the years to make the acquaintance and, and become friends with, with Gordon Wasson before he died, also with Timothy Leary, uh, Ralph Metzner, and uh, many other people. It, it, was, it was a very rewarding exchange of, of, of ideas with them. It, it came somewhat to a head for me in the early aughts when I uh, started working in the inpatient psychiatry unit at a hospital in Olympia, Washington. And in 2001, I got my license as a licensed professional counselor. And about that time, I just, uh, I fell out of touch with many people in the psychedelic community. And uh, much as Rick Doblin described a 10-year interregnum early in his, earlier in his career, I feel like I've been in hibernation for about 20 years. So I missed a lot of what was going on, or I only heard about it vaguely. I'm not living in a university town. So it, it was easy to miss a lot of this, but I'm playing catch up now and it's absolutely amazing to me how far things have gone. And, and I'm very enthusiastic about the prospect going forward. Uh, it, just to wrap up, I'd like to say that in my 20 years of being a counselor in this inpatient psychiatry unit, I have uh, been involved in a lot of therapy with patients and maybe more to the point, I, I've got a window into the lives of people that uh, help me understand what kind of therapy they're undergoing on a one-to-one -one basis out in the communities. And it has consistently seemed to me to often fall short. Um, I, I often think of a particular quote that I'd like to read, it's not long, from, uh, this was from the memoirs of Hector Berlioz, the French uh, composer. Near the end of his life, he wrote the following. The road which remains, whatever its length, must certainly strongly resemble that already passed. Everywhere the same deep ruts, the same rough stones, the same broken ground, crossed here and there by some clear brook, shaded by some peaceful grove, and surmounted by some sublime rock, which I shall laboriously ascend and there bathe myself in the evening sunshine after the cold rain endured all day in the plains. Men and things do indeed change, but so slowly that the change is hardly perceptible in the short span of human existence. To derive benefits from it, I should have to live 200 years. I think it's obvious that the transformative experiences that, uh, that people get from psychedelic therapy certainly from Stan's uh, psychedelic therapy and holotropic breath work would greatly accelerate, uh, accelerate that rate of change. And uh, I think it, an indication of that is the title of some of the books that have been coming out about uh, the, in, so the psychedelic renaissance. Uh, Tim Leary published a book, his collected shorter writings that was called 
uh, changing my mind, among others. So there's that changing. Don Lanton published a book through Synergetic Press called um, Changing Our Mind. And a year later, of course, Michael Pollan published How to Change Our Mind. So it's no coincidence that change is foremost in those titles. I do think that that is the main promise of psychedelic therapy. And I am very hopeful that the psychedelic renaissance means a resumption of widespread interest in not only Groff's work, but Jungian psychology as well, and, and any other form of transpersonal um, spiritual training. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. I, I uh, completely concur that um, the, the pace of change is really kind of dizzying, particularly those of us who've been um, focused on this for a long time. Um, and that makes a very lovely way of introducing Jasmine Verdi, who represents, I think, more of the future, whereas the rest of us represent more of the past. And I, uh, I welcome your input and your perspective, Jasmine, and I'd like to encourage you to talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm just so delighted to be here. And um, it, it's just been such a lovely event so far. Just the amount of love that people have for Stan and his work. And, you know, I really felt that the whole way through this event. And, you know, I just feel so humbled and grateful to be here among people who are, you know, um, Stan's contemporaries, you know, or worked closely with him and had the personal you know, depth of relationship with him. Um, for me, you know, part of my um, connection to th this event and Stan is obviously through Synergetic Press and through the book Psyche Unbound, because I work for the press. But um, beyond that, um, Pizza also mentioned that I'm, you know, a psychedelic um, practitioner in training. Um, I'll, I'll be starting Naropa's Psychedelic Assisted Therapies Certificate Program this year. And, um, I'm a student of transpersonal psychology, um, but going back to Stan and his work about, you know, how I first connected with his body of work, um, you know, I've long been interested in spirituality and spiritual states, transpersonal states, and um, in 2014, I had a very deep encounter with psilocybin, and, you know, I'd gone into that um, experience factoring for set and setting, and I, I curated the whole thing to um, you know, facilitate the questions about my myself and um, the cosmos that I wanted to ask. And, you know, it was a very beautiful um, experience overall. But after the fact, I, I found it very destabilizing, actually. And, um, you know, strange things started to happen without um, me really being in control of myself, um, you know, I've, I've experienced these energetic shifts. I felt a little bit manic. My sleeping patterns had changed, and you know, uh, I felt very much, very much different. Although kind of more connected to something higher, but it, it was a very jarring experience, and that lasted um, over the course of several months. And at the time, it was quite scary because, you know, even from 2014 to now, I think that we've seen such a big shift in the way that people talk about psychedelics, you know, um, there's been a lot of, um, when the mainstream media, you know, as, um, as um, Tom mentioned, you know, Michael Pollan's book, I think there's a lot more kind of highlighting of psychedelics and, you know, although stigma is still there, it's, it's going down. 
but I not knowing really what I had experienced I, I encountered um, Stan and you know his late wife Christina's book Spiritual Emergency and reading that really changed me and um, yeah I think the concept of spiritual emergency is as someone who's kind of actively you know working in the psychedelic space in different capacities like I I also um, I volunteer for Fireside Project and if people don't know what that is it's um, a free psychedelic peer support line service so you know people call and text um, usually people who are actively tripping or um, people wanting to process or integrate their experiences and it's a relatively new service but um, you know what I find is just with this paradigm of well, just media throwing a lot of attention on the healing benefits of psychedelics, which is amazing. I think there's also a side that it creates these kind of false um, expectations sometimes, you know, and people come to psychedelics from a very desperate place sometimes, um, really, really hoping for some radical healing. But I think what's not emphasized enough, and I think, you know, a lot of Stan's work has been carried through into the current paradigm of how you know, people are using psychedelics therapeutically, um, you know, with inner, inner healing intelligence and holotropic breath work. But I think this concept of spiritual emergency has been left out a little bit. And, you know, I really, well, you know, going back to volunteering for the peer support line, people will call in and they're just kind of exasperated by having this experience, which maybe was beautiful and healing in certain ways, but then you know, it's, it's just very chaotic and messy and they feel worse off than when they started. And I think like for me as someone walking into this space, I really want to emphasize that healing is a non-linear process. And like this kind of mess that emerges out of our psyches can be integral to the healing process. And I, I think that's a really important part of uh, Stan's work. And um, I guess the other kind of leaf of my connection to Stan is that I'm also doing a master's in transpersonal psychology and you know as you know everyone speaking here knows that you know Stan was one of the founding fathers of the field of transpersonal psychology and you know transpersonal psychology really embodied this this different way of looking at the psyche and different way of looking at non-ordinary states of consciousness taking a non-pathologizing approach to these states and um, viewing them as kind of generative of healing, of meaning, of, um, you know, human evolution. Um, and I think for me, as someone who's studying transpersonal psychology now, like there's this tension between these ideas are still being kind of, you know, not embraced by the mainstream um, within the paradigm of, you know, psychology, psychiatry and um, beyond. And I think what, what's appealing about the field to me is that it offers these kind of non-materialist approaches to consciousness. And, um, you know, I think looking at psychedelics and plant medicines, like a lot of them emerged from these contexts, you know, indigenous contexts. And um, I think that these non-materialist or post-materialist approaches to consciousness and, you know, viewing these non-ordinary states is so important because, um, you know, as Stan had wrote, written in one of his earlier papers on the history of transpersonal psychology, you know, I think 
science at large is very, very ethnocentric, you know, it focuses very much on the Western perspective, but I, I'm really interested in how, you know, building on transpersonal psychology, we can like center um, new perspectives on, you know, humanity, on consciousness, on healing, on mental health. And um, in a way I view transpersonal psychology and this whole legacy of, you know, Stan's work on consciousness as a way of kind of decolonizing the, the psychedelic um, well, our understanding of these substances, but I, I don't think we're there yet. And so I think that's some of the work that me and, you know, my, my peers have to do and want to do, you know, and kind of in integrating these indigenous perspectives and really kind of embracing them for what they are and not necessarily trying to view them through the lens of Western science. Like that's what I would love to see eventually. So yeah, these are some of the, the ideas that are struck up when I, I look at the, the wonderful legacy that Stan has left us with. And um, I think I'd like to leave it there for now. Well, Jasmine, I would just, if, if you wouldn't mind, I would like for, to encourage you to elaborate a little bit on something you mentioned, which is you talked about the, the, you, the term that you used was non-ordinary states of consciousness. And I just mm -hmm. wonder if you would contrast that with the way in which sometimes science refers to some of these experiences as altered states of consciousness and how that really is representative of some of the epistemology that you're talking about, about where these mm -hmm. experiences have been lodged throughout human history. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's something that Stan has emphasized in his, um, in his earlier work, the, the difference between non-ordinary states and altered states of consciousness. And so, you know, the idea that a, a state of consciousness would be altered, you know, an altered state, it, it kind of, it's also likened to calling psychedelics hallucinogens, you know, it's like, what, what do we believe these substances are, or these states are, you know, they, they just a distortion of our consciousness, and therefore altered, and, you know, it leaves room for kind of, you know, as I mentioned previously, like pathologizing these states, as opposed to really, you know, upholding them for their, um, yeah healing capacities but also evolutionary capacities and so I think like the view of them as being non-ordinary it just it, it's a much more subtle distinction you know that they're, they're just um you know it's, dreaming is a non-ordinary state of consciousness you know it's just differentiated from our waking consciousness but there's no value judgment in that and that that these states are part of the normal human endowment that we mm -hmm. uh should be able to access and are able to access. I think that's yeah, a very completely. beautiful point. Thank you very much for bringing that in. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm gonna actually turn our attention to Tom Roberts now. Um, Tom, I don't know you personally, but I have known your work for a very long time. Tom collected at one time, I think every article in print about psychedelics in English in one location. And it was a monumental effort and a huge help to anybody who wants to do any kind of scholarship in this field and all the other accomplishments that were mentioned in your introduction as well. So I, I'd like to hear from you as well today, Tom, and welcome. Uh, thank you, Maria. In keeping with the theme of this session on looking forward, 
I want to put half a dozen ideas into the pot that need discussion. So I'm not going to talk about my experiences with Stan, although they go back actually to Iceland in 1972. And I want to talk about these experiences. I see Stan's work not primarily as useful in psychotherapy, although that's what this session has been almost entirely about, but in his intellectual development and his contribution to the idea, ideas and the world of ideas. So I'd like to talk about some of the ways I think this needs to be developed. Um, first, um, everything we think we can do, everything we think others can do, our entire expectations for ourselves and for other people depends on what we think the human mind is and what our minds are capable of. And what Stan has done has given us a much more detailed view of what our minds are, what they can know and what they can do. This changes basically the whole view of what it means to be a human. It means much more to be a human now that we consider Stan's view of the mind and all the things it can do. And this of course is a major intellectual idea the idea of what the mind is. And this is what the liberal arts and the humanities are based on. It's the idea of the human mind and developing it fully. And so I am trying to interest people in the liberal arts and humanities to pick up on Stan's work and develop it there. Tom Riedlinger's SART article is a good example of that. A second is after people have had a psychedelic psychotherapy as it is now, Basically, it consists of giving somebody a mystical experience, a peak experience, a, set, a unit, unit of consciousness. And it's considered that once the presenting symptom is gone, PTSD or depression or anxiety or whatever it is, that the person is, quote, cured. On the other hand, there's a lot in people's mind, I, I like to call it the unconscious garbage of one's life, that is still there and has not been addressed. So I think the process should be starting with the symptom and doing the current psychotherapy to get rid of that symptom. And then going back to Stan's original group called psycholytic therapy in which the patient and the psychotherapist use psychedelics to bring material up from the unconscious and then discuss it until that's resolved and then use the unconscious material again coming up. And I think that the, we're making a, we're, we're shortcutting our clients when we figure that when the presenting symptom is solved, that their their problems are all right. They have all that life material garbage to be bring to be taken part of. Second, and this is the, one of the biggest ideas, we should start thinking of psychedelics as one family of ways of invent of influencing our minds. Think of them as being apps for our brain-mind system. Psychedelics are a system of apps that we can install in our brain-mind complex, but they are only one family. There are dozens of others, meditation, breathing techniques, yoga, contemplative prayer, ways of, of uh, rituals of joining communities. All these things are other mind apps, and we should think of psychedelics as being one family of these mind apps or ways that we can influence and hopefully improve our brain-mind complex. Now to make ideas a little more complicated, what will happen when we start to combine these into new recipes? For example, suppose we try, let's say, psilocybin and magnetic stimulation of the brain 
and breathing technique and hypnosis. We can produce a mind-body state that has never been produced before. And we can do things with our minds that have never been done before by using these mind apps in new recipes. As it is now, most of the research is done, looks at only one variable at a time, only hypnosis, only one type of meditation, only one type of psychedelic. But if we consider these as ingredients, we can combine them into new recipes and do things with our minds that have never been done before. We are now at the threshold of inventing new mind-body states. By the way, I call them mind-body states rather than state of consciousness. This is another one of my suggestions. Anybody who uses the word consciousness must be clear about what they mean because consciousness has lots of different meanings. And we have people get together talking about consciousness. They're actually talking about different things. And they think they're talking about the same thing because they use the word consciousness. But consciousness has lots of different ideas. For example, to alter state of consciousness in Tart's sense. Or in philosophy, consciousness usually means subjective experience. Or in sociology, we have proletarian consciousness and women's consciousness. So if people use that word and they think they're talking about the same thing, we also have like stream of consciousness, what's going through our mind second by second, minute by minute. So people should not use the word consciousness without being clear about what they're talking about. Uh, finally, um, I think we need to talk about the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is, it's called a nerve. Actually, there are two of them, but it's called singular are a nerve that comes out of the brain and goes down in contacts with our torso and all, um, all the organs in the torso. I think we need to look at what is the effect of mystical experiences on the vagus nerve. One of my experiences with psychedelics was, this is really healthy. This really feels healthy. I've never felt so healthy before. Now my guess is somehow my vagus nerve has been activated in this. And I think we need to look at the connections between the, the brain part of the nervous system and the vagus nerves, of course the other nerves particularly, but particularly the vagus nerves. I think that's a field absolutely open for research and any good people want to open a wonderful idea in psychedelic research to start looking at the effect of psychedelics and hypnosis and the other families on the vagus nerve. And finally, the last point I want to make is that I think we should look at psychedelics, the psychedelic renaissance as a four-stage process. The first stage is the one we're in now. And this has to do with psychotherapy and the neurosciences. And the talks today you know, demonstrate that very nicely. All the research, let's say over 95% of the research has to do either with psychotherapy, that is medicine and the neurosciences. But as we, we've talked about today, the experience that is psychotherapeutic is the overwhelming state of mystical union, mystical consciousness, a state of, 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 of that's felt to be religious or sacred. And this moves us up to the entheogenic use of consciousness. By the way, I think the word entheogen should be reserved for the spiritual and religious use of psychedelics, not as a synonym for psychedelics. But anyway, that, that therapeutic event moves us up to the entheogenic use of psychedelics. But as we start investigating that, we get into other things like goodness, sensuality, sexuality, truth, reality. Probably everybody listening to this has had this experience. This is real. This is really real. 
this is realer than real. In other words, we can do experimental studies on the sense of reality. And we've had insights, oh, this is really true, I know it. Now this allows us to move up to humanities, which looks at things like beauty, truth, meaningfulness, truth, and goodness, okay? And this moves us up from the entheogen stage to the third stage that I call the ideogen stage. I've invented this idea, ideogen, to say that what psychedelics do is they generate new ideas, idea gen, see? Now, as we look at that, we can develop the psychedelic humanities and we can do experimental studies now. We can have somebody take psilocybin and look at truth. We can do experimental studies of beauty. We can do experimental studies of reality. We can do experimental studies of what it means to be a person, a sense of I. We now can do experimental humanities. And this bridges the gap between sciences on one hand and humanities on the other. Psychedelics allow us to do experimental humanities. And I would love to see the humanities people get interested in that. And this brings the idea that I just mentioned previously. When we start using psychedelics experimentally, we ask the question, what is there besides psychedelics that can do this? And we get into that, what I call the, the mind apps meditation, um, hypnosis, brain stimulation, so on and so forth. And so the, I think the fourth stage is the stage of combining these mind apps into new recipes and, pre and producing new types of minds that'll do new things. And who knows what abilities will be residing in those other mind apps. Some of the things we, can clear, we consider impossible may be impossible because we only look in our ordinary default mind-body state. But when we look in other states, we might find other uh, abilities reside in them. Things we can do in, the, in these other mind-body states, we can't do in our ordinary awake default state. So those are ideas I want to toss into the, into the psychedelic pod. And I hope people who are interested in psychedelics will start addressing these issues and not get stuck on psychotherapy. I'm sorry, psychotherapist, I don't mean to say you are stuck, but really it would be nice if you would broaden your minds and consider psychedelics in their full intellectual implications, not just how do I help my client. That's it, goodbye. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. You know, I, I think mind apps have an honorable tradition and a substantial tr tradition behind them. A lot of the cultural containers from which the plant teachers come use sonic driving, photic driving, fasting, thirsting, incense, yes. and other things to augment the experience in some of the ways that you're talking about, except the ones you're talking about are the ones we have that are new now. And I think this is a very rich and potentially very fruitful area for exploration because it's got a good track record already. Amen to that. <laughs> well, now I, I am pleased to be able to call on Diane Haug, whom I know very gratefully as a friend and whom I know also as one of the most senior teachers of the modality that we think of as holotropic breathwork. She's been all over the world, taught thousands of people, worked with them on the floor in the most extreme versions of unusual states of consciousness and accompanied Stan on a lot of his most exciting adventures. And so I'm very glad that you're here. Thank you. Thank you, Bria. <clears throat> I think I need to get some water. Um, 
I didn't say this this morning during the first panel, but I actually live with a speech disorder. It's a neuromuscular problem. So uh, later in the day, the, the fatigue factor um, sets in. And uh, so please bear with me. It, it's not uh, this quality of voice will change. And the more I talk, the better. It doesn't hurt, but I'm very self-conscious about uh, the variation in my voice. So. Um, wow, <laughs> what a day. Um, I just have to start by uh, reiterating something that Rick Tarna said this morning. Uh, I, as a friend of Stan's, I'm just so delighted that this could happen during his lifetime that he's actually with us, he's, he's well, he's able to witness what has been happening in the field. Uh, uh, in a way, he, I, I don't think he ever expected these changes, this growth, this explosion of interest and accessibility. Um, so it's, it's just, it, it, this is the kind of event that I, I am very, very pleased he could witness and be a part of. And um, it, it's felt like a major life review for me to, to, today too, I'll have to say. It's, uh, it's been beautiful to see old friends, to see colleagues. I know there are many people in the audience. I've, I've, I, I know you're there. I know you've been there today. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, I'm actually, uh, you know, over the years, I've identified much more with the clinical kind of therapy end of things and um, rel the relational field is where I live and where I'm fed so deeply. So I've missed you <laughs> these last two years. It's been very difficult not to be in personal contact, mm -hmm. intimate contact, deep contact with people. I I've missed that very much. Maria gave me permission to talk a little bit about my background, my personal story, and other presenters have actually touched on that too. So I'd like to do that. And uh, so it'll be some, my contribution will be some about the past and actually some about the present and uh, some of what I'd like to lend my life force to in terms of the future. So a, a little bit of each of those things. I mentioned this morning that I met Stan in my 30s and my public life, actually up until that point, I had spent a decade focused on end of life care, both with adults and with children who were living with catastrophic illness. And I had an interest in wellness, especially in relationship to supporting people who did have catastrophic health concerns. So when I met his work, I saw it through the lens of the, what was um, that rich field, emergent field that was called psychoneuroimmunology, the mind-body connection was really quite a focus. 
And I didn't know anything about Stan really, except the title, The Human Encounter with Death. And it was my personal association between Stan and end of life care that got me to a lecture in Austin, Texas in um, 1986. And, uh, um, <laughs> Everything shifted that weekend. Uh, I, I had never, I hadn't had those early years at Esla and Mike uh, Maria. Um, I, I, I knew who Joseph Campbell was, but I, I personally had never heard anybody present who had the kind of encyclopedic knowledge of Stan, the scholarship, and not to mention the, the clinical background. So. I was just, my mind was pretty blown that evening. And the evening, I mean, the weekend actually included an experience with the holotropic breathwork. Again, I, I, I had no experience of it at all. But what I saw and felt, what I experienced personally, what I observed in experiences of others that weekend, uh, everything shifted. I, um, so when Stan at the end of the weekend said he was looking for 30 students that would be willing to study with him for three years, John Buchanan was in the group that I joined, Rick Dobbin was in the group, Will Keepen came soon after. So there, were, there was a collection of us who, who actually had the good fortune to receive Stan's transmission right at the end of his 14-year tenure at Eslin as scholar in residence. So um, we were studying transpersonal psychology. Uh, it was, we, you know, we were not working with psychedelics in that early training. Stan and Christine Groff had already crafted what came to be known as holotropic breathwork before our training started. But uh, still, you can't know Stan and study with Stan without getting the transmission around psychedelics and psychedelic psychotherapy. So I felt that um, we were incredibly fortunate to get that when it was so fresh and Stan had so much energy for teaching. He felt ready to start preparing next generation. Of, of students. And in fact, the skill set that we were offered, that we inherited, was then and what is still, I would consider, to be best practices in terms of working with deep, non ordinary, or expanded, or extraordinary states of consciousness. And of course, Jasmine, uh, we had the good fortune of studying with. Um, Christina, too, who was so beautifully transparent and public about her own journey as it related to spiritual emergency or spiritual emergence, along with her own struggles with um, uh, addiction. And the, the, it, was, it made such... Um, it, it was just a rich opportunity to receive from both of them, Stan and Christina. The other thing that I saw 
through that lens, my own lens of healthcare and my my interest in wellness and, and my interest in end of life care is that I saw work in the breath work, which for many people, I, I can say, um, I've heard so many reports over the years Many people had experiences with the breathwork process that would rival in and be as important in meaning and value as they experience with the psychedelic. Um, I could talk a lot about that, um, but I think I'll, I'll move, I'll fast forward a bit. I had the good fortune, I had the flexibility and freedom in my life when Stan uh, asked if it would be possible for me to join the training and actually start traveling. I, I was able to do that. I haven't had children. I didn't have a family. I, um, so I had the good fortune of working with him and teams of people in all of these different places. But uh, we were able to seed the holotropic breathwork all over the world. You know, a lot of people associate Stan with his early work with psychedelics, but many people don't have very much detail about the 25 years he dedicated to working with the breath. No psychedelics on board. When that big prohibition happened, he didn't. He didn't miss a beat. He and Christine crafted a, a, a therapeutic modality that could be used with a wide number of people without the same kind of uh, legal um, issues involved. And I, I, I am very confident in saying that to this day, I, I'm positive that he finds the breathwork experiences to be as compelling as the psychedelic experience. He has never lost his interest in the, the landscape and the territory of non-ordinary states. And for him and for all of us who, who really were in the front line with the holotropic breathwork for decades, we could, you know, I, I can attest to the, the playing field being absolutely the same. And um, so we were able to take the skill set that we inherited based on his early psychedelic work, apply it in the context to creating the safest space as possible for people to do deep work and um, then, um, you know, as things have come full circle, it's just, is so satisfying to see that Stan's work is still so time honored. And those are the same skill sets that people are learning today that we're trying to offer. I, I want to just mention um, for those of you who might not be familiar with it, I've had the good fortune to be associated with the CIIS certificate program under the umbrella of the center, Maria mentioned this, the Center for Psychedelic Therapy and Research that program. It was initiated in 2016. We're preparing for our 2022 cohorts. And I've had the good fortune to actually 
uh, uh, be the one that has been able to deliver um, information theoretically and up until pandemic time, a practical experience with the holotropic breathwork as uh, the closest thing we've been able to offer uh, experience experientially wise to a psychedelic experience. We've, uh, we're trying to keep Stanton's work alive through CIS. And uh, I, I'm really look for, looking forward to the time we can get back to actually taking each year's cohort through a weekend that includes not only the theoretical and practical experience, with, with the breath work, but it's been um, personally and professionally for me very satisfying to see because of programs like CIS and training programs like MAPS. Uh, Michael Mithoffer was on the last panel. He talked so beautifully about uh, the influence that Stan Groff has had on his life and the way that um, the, uh, Stan's holotropic perspective has actually been incorporated into the training of therapists under the MAPS umbrella. Um, it's Stan's name and his work is, it's taken a, a while, but it is really getting out there to a much wider audience. I'm hearing people in the most unexpected places talking about the holotropic perspective and their deeper understanding of, of the guiding principles inherent in his work. Maria, how am I on time? You're getting there. You're about yeah. 14 minutes right now. Okay. Um, I'll use those, that precious last minute or two. Um, I spoke about it this morning in panel one, and I just want to mention that there are so many of us out here who actually uh, feel the importance of maintaining, preserving, promoting the integrity of Stanton's contribution, both theoretically and practically. And uh, to that end, a number of us in 2020, actually, uh, we've given form to a 501c3, a not-for-profit organization called the Groff Legacy Project USA.org. And I, I'm very grateful that City Lights has been willing to remind people of our address over and over again. We want that organization to grow. We think of it as an educational vehicle. We think of it as a training vehicle. And um, we'd love to do public programs and we'd like to do more outreach in, in terms of embedding Stan's teaching and the, his perspective into the culture at large as it relates to medicine, education. I've, I've offered breathwork in intentional spiritual community. I've used breathwork in working with uh, activists. Again, I feel like we are just scratching the surface in terms of the application of Stan's work in the future. And I want to use the rest of my uh, 
working life, my life forced toward, uh, um, toward that end. So I feel like I've been incredibly fortunate. I, I'm grateful to have the health uh, to kind of keep going into my 70s. And uh, um, I, again, it's such a deep bout of appreciation to Stan and all of the colleagues and friends that I've met along the way. Um, this journey has uh, informed and enriched my life. Um, so thank you. And thanks, Maria. Diane, it's so wonderful to hear from you because you are so much the embodiment of how this work is reaching out into the community. And you've done it in everywhere and in, in just everywhere in the world. And it gives a lot of encouragement that we're going to go forward in the future. And I'm so grateful that you're here and that you've been able to bring out this teaching to so many people. And I want to also um, call upon you, John Buchanan, whom I'm just meeting in the context of this event, but I must say I was thrilled by the chapter that the, the essay that you wrote in this new publication, because although it requires a kind of intellectual focus that I think those of us who spend our days in front of computer screens are increasingly not practicing very much. You're extremely clear about some very, very complex topics. And so I really want to hear from you today. And I hope you'll talk to us about what you wrote or whatever else is on your mind. Thank you, Maria. It's a pleasure to be here and to listen to everyone. I'll, I've been here through all, all the sessions, which I, which has been really wonderful, but I I'm, feel I may be suffering from a bit of brain fatigue oh. at this point. So if, I, if I'm not quite as clear, uh, please excuse me. Uh, let me let me give a little context. I I, uh, I first met Stan at Esalen also back around 1986. I went up there and did a couple workshops and uh, with him and Christina, and they mentioned that they're going to start a three-year training group soon. And I applied and was very excited to get accepted into it and flew up to uh, uh, Desolation Bay and on the ferry over, uh, there was Rick Doblin, who I'd, I'd known at New College, uh, undergraduate and, uh, and Diane, and it was a wonderful group and, and an amazing experience to spend 11 or 12 days in the wilderness uh, doing holotropic breath work with, you know, concentrated and uh, my, my only concern was that I was in early sobriety and you know, around a lot of people who are actively interested in uh, ultra, in psychedelics. Uh, and, and then I discovered that Christina Groff was in early recovery also. So we formed a mini support group and it was a fantastic experience. Um, I then uh, asked, um, asked Stan to be on my dissertation committee at Emory and he was off campus member and uh, and was, I, I think may have been the only person to actually have read my dissertation, which is 700 pages long. And I, I don't blame, I have a memory of, a. I went on a, uh, a total eclipse cruise around Hawaii with Stan and Christine and some other friends. And at this picture of Stan reading my dissertation manu, manuscript on, in a deck chair on, on this cruise boat, I felt very guilty, you know, but, uh, uh, he, he's been, a, you know, a wonderful mentor, friend, and colleague, and uh, and one of the two or three most exceptional people I've, I've met in my life. Um, 
you know, I, I first encountered his work also like Rick Coblin did at, uh, at New College. And even back then I was having addiction issues and I, I saw, well, large doses of LSD can be used to, you know, to, treat, to treat addiction. So I got hold of uh, six hits of blotter acid and it took two to kind of test the waters. And then I had found, discovered I'd lost the other four, four hits. And whoever gave me, sold me the first six didn't want to sell me anymore after they found out what I was doing. So I didn't really discover if, if that would have been successful, but I suspect I had a, had a continuing journey. So I, but anyway, I, I, I loved, I read that book and it was so helpful. I, I'd earlier read a Houston master's book on, uh, varieties of psychedelic experience, which I'd found enormously helpful. And Stan, Stan's book was, of a, was a little different, but also so very helpful in contextualizing my psychedelic experiences and giving me a sense that other people are going through this and uh, what might be going on. I, um, you know, I, I got interested in, um, in questions about um, you know, the nature of reality, altered, altered states of consciousness and mystical experience back when I was 19 and started taking psychedelics. And it's, um, it's sort of surprising to me that everyone who takes psychedelics don't immediately, ask, I guess everyone asks these questions, but maybe not everybody wants to go to college for the next 10 years and, and study them, but I couldn't help myself. And so I I studied a lot of different psychology and some philosophy and religion, you know, all the usual, went through all the usual suspects. And then at Emory, um, I uh, actually a professor suggested I do a directed reading in the philosophy of Alfred North Whitehead. And there was a man there who was retiring, but was there for one more semester, who was an expert in that area. And, and that's all I did that semester. And I, I felt like, well, this is what I've finally been looking for, kind of an overarching metaphysical, cosmological contextualization for non-ordinary states of consciousness and, and how they link into our everyday life and how to connect them with, uh, with science, scientific discoveries. And, and so that's what I've been pursuing for the last, uh, well, well, since then. Um, I, after I graduated, Stan Groff and one of these Whiteheadian uh, teachers said, well, why don't you do a conference on all of us at Esalen. So there I was up at Esalen a year later with, uh, you know, with some of the, with, well, with, uh, I think Jenny Wade was there and, uh, and Rick Tarnas might've been there, but it, you know, Francis Vaughn and Roger Walsh. And, you know, it was amazing to be all, all my, you know, a lot of my heroes and people that I'd been studying, you know, there, there we were at Esalen for uh, four or five days. And I, you know, I've continued on. I, actually, this book that's coming out, which my publisher says I have to promote, they don't do it, so I'll mention it again. Is hopefully coming out in May. It'll be processing reality, finding meaning in death, psychedelics, and sobriety. Uh, I titled it that because my father's death when I was eleven was a sudden death was a, a huge motivator for me to think about what life meant and uh, and you know what what life is about. Um, and then obviously uh, psychedelics and sobriety all, all presented different kinds of challenges to my understanding of, of the world. Um, and it's called processing reality because Whitehead's major work is called process and reality. And one of my new college friends cleverly suggested that title after I had batted around about eight other possibilities. Um, I, 
I don't feel like I satisfactorily explained why I think Whitehead's so important in my 250 page book. So I'm not gonna to try to do it in the next three minutes for you. But Whitehead offer, does offer a way of connecting, I, I, I think of, get, how should I say? It, it moves us out of the remains of the materialist mechanistic paradigm that science seems so unable to shrug off and into the kind of interconnected, interpenetrating, experiential, spiritual universe that I, I think psychedelics reveals to us as, as the way things are, and which actually quantum physics also reveals to us as the way things are. But a lot of science still remains stuck in the old fashioned thinking that, uh, you know, started with Descartes and, and it's hard, hard to sh shrug off these deep seated uh, assumptions and legacies. Uh, of the past, but as far as I can discern, the uh, process thought is is the best approach. Um, you know, some of Stan's favorite thinkers, like uh, David Bohm and Erin Laszlo, are both heavily influenced by Whitehead, and Sheldrake may as well have been heavily influenced by Whitehead. I think he claims he wasn't, but I don't believe him. <laughs> but he, you know, th this is a, what a Whitehead their their approach to science is what a Whiteheadian approach to science would be. Although you know, they're, they're all smart enough to sort of come up with whole new theories and, of their own and dress them up in their interesting ways. Whereas I, I can only repeat what I've learned from Stan and, uh, and the Whiteheadian people. But I think the ideas are valuable enough that I, I, I thought I'd try to share them and make them, make them as accessible as possible because they, they can be difficult. You know, a lot of philosophers are just difficult to, to, to read straight out. So I, I tried to contextualize some of these ideas within my own psychedelic experiences and other life events in, in my book. And I, don't, I didn't do it as much in my chapter because that was, well, it's too short. And that, that was, I think I wrote that back in 2005 when we had another conference at Esalen uh, on, uh, well, actually in honor of Stan Groff. And so I had to throw in my, my two cents worth. Um, I won't go on much longer, but I do want to say that I, um, I, you know, I certainly agree that you know we, we don't want to see a psychedelic therapy fall under the auspices of uh, corporate medicine and and, and and corporate pharmaceuticals, and you know that's going to be difficult. You know, as the sociological term, the, these things tend to take over. Anything new that comes up tends to get absorbed into the old way of doing things, and the powers that be. So I, I think it will be help, be one, one way is if we can shift the large paradigm that the uh, our culture is working under, that makes it more difficult for the uh, old the old ways of thinking, the old powers of be to uh, to retain control. You know, uh, I, I won't I won't I, I don't go into it much in my book, but let me just mention that this process philosophy provides a, a few keys, a, a few things that correlate really well with uh, Groff's approach to, to holotropic therapy and, and psychedelic therapy. First, it, it, it hypothesizes that either God or the universe provides an ideal aim for every moment of experience. And so there's, you know, th that correlates, I think, really well with the inner guidance that we get, the sense of how things could unfold and I, and I remember from my psychedelic experience, it feels as if everything's going sometimes just right and everything's just coming out in a way that it should. 
And you know, that would be in alignment with this initial aim. A and the, um, I'm, I'm just reading a book now called Intensity, which, which, which argues that that's the key notion in, in Whitehead's understanding of experience. And that what the, uh, the universe values most is intensive experience, which is increasing depth and richness, which is my experience with, with exactly what psychedelics and uh, holotropic breathwork do. I'm, I, I, I may be over, I may be under, but I'm gonna, I, I think we'll have a few minutes. We're, I believe we're being allowed to continue on after the, uh, after the allotted time for a few questions and discussions. So I'll cut off there and give people a chance to talk too. Uh, I, for those of you who are not following the chat, I just wanted to point out that um, Rick Tarnas also just put into the chat an acknowledgement for the support that you, John, have given to the moving forward of this publication and getting this to happen. And so um, all of us who've, if, even if, if our extent of familiarity with this publication is just that we've all been enjoying ourselves here today, we all owe you a debt of gratitude and I wanna thank you. Um, I also have some questions that I've kind of stored up for things that I was hoping we might have time to get into. And so, John, I don't, I don't, I want to be sure that you're done before I start changing the subject. Was there something else you wanted to, to go on with? Um, no, but I just like to hear what other people are um, thinking. Well, um, Jasmine, I'd like to ask you a specific question, which is, um, Historically, where are the BIPOC voices in the, in the conversation around psychedelics? In your biography, um, it was mentioned that you got an award from SSDP, from the Students for Sensible Drug Policy. And so you have at least some experience of being nominated to talk about some of these subjects. And I wonder if you'd be willing to say something about that. Yeah, of course. Firstly, I think that, you know, um, thinking about like Maslow's pyramid of needs, you know, that, yeah, these transpersonal states of consciousness and spiritual spirituality and these kind of interests in the esoteric, you know, or in self-actualization that, you know, I'm not saying that they don't exist, for, but if you're worrying about your bread and butter every day, you know, you're not going to have the time to really engage in these ideas in such a deep way. And so I think that's one aspect you know, barring BIPOC communities from, you know, the, the transpersonal discourse historically and also psychedelics, but particularly when it relates to psychedelics, I think, you know, we could talk about the war on drugs being kind of racist in many ways. And I think, you know, as a, a person of color and especially, you know, in the United States context, you know, as a black person, I would imagine that if you were taking these substances, there would be such an, a heightened risk of, um, you know, getting in trouble for them, getting, you know, incarcerated. Um, and so I think, I think those two things factor in deeply. Thank you. Uh, what do you think we can do to change that? Anything? Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm kind of really excited about what I see in the psychedelic space uh, with lots of kind of, you know, scholarships for BIPOC folk, um, just kind of um, grants and things like that. But also I, I think it's like a, a conversation of kind of coming together in community and like really understanding each other's needs, you know, and this is across communities. 
um, not just with BIPOC folk, you know, just maybe with queer, uh, you know, all, all of these different kind of communities. I think we need to come together. We need to have intergenerational dialogues. I think we need to kind of celebrate each other and also power share. Um, and so I think, you know, me being on this panel feels like that in a way, you know, I'm just humbled to be amongst you all and also really humbled and um, grateful for the, the opportunity to share my perspective. So um, collaboration is key. Thank you very much. Um, there have been some really lovely comments in the chat. Someone um, pointed out that careful, humble, and prepared approaches were the appropriate ones, and that knowledge and progress comes through effort. And I think that that sort of fits into this part of the conversation as well. And uh, I, hopefully we'll, we'll all um, move forward in a way that's respectful of what's gone before, but also makes space for the realizations that are part of contemporary society and the recognition that some of us who are already in place need to move over to make room for some other people to take the positions that we now hold. Um, Tom Roberts, when you were speaking, you talked about consciousness and the way that consciousness is used in kind of, mm, if, forgive me if I'm getting ahead of you, but some somewhat a little bit sloppy ways sometimes. And I just was thinking when you said that, that the word community tends to get used in the same way. You know, people often, particularly in you know, like blog posts and things like that, you'll hear people say, oh, the psychedelic community. And I always want to say, what community are they talking about? You know, like community to me involves a certain kind of um, mutual responsibility for the people that you think of as the as your community. And I think that that we could we could do better with that. And Tom, I wonder if you had anything to say about that. Um, oh, would, you, would, you, would you ask that again, please, briefly? Oh, let's see, maybe I'll make it better. How's that? Um, yeah. I was talking about the fact that you used the, the, um, the word, you talked about the way that the word consciousness is kind of uh, applied in ways that are blurry. And I was pointing out that I think the word community is also applied, uh, applied in ways that are blurry because to me, community in, involves a certain amount of mutual responsibility for your community members. And I wondered if you had anything to add to that or if you want to agree or disagree with that point of view. Oh, it certainly means lots of, I think when people say community, what they really mean is people like me, you know, my community, people like me, rather than, rather than a, a, a broader sense. Yeah, I th that's, well, a lot of words that are, that are used because they sound like they mean something. I think community and consciousness are two of those. People say those, they think they're meaning something. But you ask them to unpack the word, and you find out the word is hollow. It has they can't really say what they're talking about. But it certainly sounds impressive. You know, books on consciousness certainly sound like something one one would have in one's scholarly library. Thank you. Um, I wonder if there's a panel member who has a topic or a question that they'd like to bring forward. I just want. I'd like to mix it up. Something for Jasmine. Um, you mentioned Maslow's needs hierarchy. Late in his life, he added a level above self-actualization called self-transcendence. And uh, he very, was also very interested in the work of Groff and knew Groff and talked with him. 
and saw that Gronk's use of psychedelics was, was presiding a, a level above self-actualization into self-transcendence. And he's, he mentioned that in quite a few of his, Maslow mentioned that in his later writings, particularly the further nature of, of human nature, or something like that, the one that came out posthumously. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I, I think I need to read more Maslow. <laughs> yeah, it's the last book. Okay. Um, if, if you can, if you can email me, I can send you a little article I wrote on that. I just, I've just, okay. uh, I just took all of his um, quotations and packed them all together into a, a small collection. Wonderful. I'll do so. John, did you have a question? Uh, I was just going to tell Tom, I recorded a book a few years ago called uh, Rethinking Consciousness. I, 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 hope, I hope we were su subtle enough for you. I hope so. I haven't read the book, so I'll assume so. Well, if, if, by did you mean um, subjective experience by consciousness? Um, I did. There, yeah. there's a, there's a collection of essays. I, you know, with uh, Stan Krippner forward. And I, 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 think, I think you might like it. Send me your address and I'll send you a copy. Okay, um, Maria has can put us in contact. Yeah, we, we, we can um, facilitate that and I would be happy <laughs> and, and, and honored to do it. Um, Tom Riedlinger, you're kind of out there uh, from the beginning in, in the quiet zone. And I wonder if any of this is percolating for you and if there's something you'd like to say as we're getting toward the end. Looks like he's muted. Tom, you may want to unmute yourself. Can you hear me now? Yeah, yeah thank you. Right. Yeah, as I said, I feel like I've been in, in a state of uh, hibernation for 20 years relative to psychedelics. And I, it's just wonderful to find out how much has been going on while I've been semi-sleeping. Um, I think uh, there, there's real cause for optimism about uh, the, the proliferation of psychedelic therapy. I, I recognize the problems we're facing, like the cost of it. We want to make sure it doesn't become available only to, uh, to an elite group. I, I think it's fantastic that we have not only uh, breath work, uh, but uh, you know, a full-blown psychedelic uh, therapy uh, is um, on the horizon. Uh, the truth is, though, with, you know, when I think about my patients in the psych unit, almost none of whom have ever had any psychedelic therapy. They're nonetheless uh, in uh, benefit from it at times if they know people who've taken psychedelics and uh, are able to share uh, the insights they gain from that. Or if they're working with providers or therapists whose work is informed by their own psychedelic experiences. And ultimately they, they should be able to access um, uh, breath work if it proliferates as well, and, and some forms of psychedelic therapy. I'm, right now, I'm interested in and hope to learn when I do the, the Psychedelic Assisted Therapies Program at CIIS, I want to learn more about the uh, fact that people with psychotic disorders are contraindicated from a lot of therapy, which has been true from the very beginning. I'm still a little puzzled as to why that seems to apply as well to people with bipolar disorder. Uh, but there's a lot to learn, and I, I think that as we go forward, the uh, I think the psychedelic uh, therapy community may find ways to make adaptations or adjustments in order to to 
take in a much, a much broader uh, percentage of the population and not leave people uh, cut out of it. Now, I'm, I'm, uh, it's, I'm very optimistic. Something's going on out there, and, and I feel like I'm going to be here for the uh, tail end of it, uh, and that's good enough for me. It's just been wonderful hearing from all of you and all your different perspectives, and uh, that, that's in, increased my optimism as well. Diane, did you have a last comment that you'd like to make? No, thank you. Okay, I, I on the other hand, do. And I would like to say that um, I, I can't properly thank all the team members at the Synergetic Press who brought this publication and this event together. But you know who you are and who I can thank and identify as Deborah Parrish Snyder, who is a powerful force for good in the community. And she and her community have been that for a long, long time. And it's very gratifying to see the success of Synergetic Press and of the ideas and um, ways of living that her community and my community and other communities whose community life has been based on experiences that came from these sacred medicines uh, are enjoying in the present day. So I am extremely grateful to be here and for the opportunities that have been made available to me by a lot <laughs> of the people here and the opportunity to learn from them. And I'm extremely happy to be here tonight. Thank you all so much. And City Lights, by the way, thank you so much. You're an outstanding organization of ripeness and stature and may you live long and prosper, all of you. Maria, do you wanna say something about the University of Pennsylvania program? I think people should know about that. Oh, uh, oh dear. Um, my difficulty is I can't type fast enough to put these things in the chat, but there are two things I should mention. One is that nurses are being recognized and assuming a position of acknowledgement in relation to the work that they've done in psychedelic assisted therapy, in exploration of psychedelics and in healing and health um, since the beginning of the investigations of these subjects in the West. And uh, the University of Pennsylvania is presenting a six part series, which is originated by nurses and is probably gonna be largely attended by nurses, but it's an introduction to psychedelic substances and uh, therapies in the here and now. And it's available at the University of Pennsylvania. It's gonna be uh, taking place over the next few months. Um, it's for free. And um, I think the first one was pretty good. So I would encourage you to participate. And then the other thing I wanted to mention is the Women's Visionary Council, which is a nonprofit organization of visionary women. The, the, the first psychedelic colloquium um, in this century was held by Women's Visionary Council in 2007. And we dedicated ourselves to increasing the visibility of women scholars, artists, healers, and visionaries in the uh, realms around psychedelics. And I think that that agenda has largely been achieved. And you can, um, you see Jasmine has put our uh, website up in the chat and I would encourage you to take a look. It's full of interesting stuff and lots of tremendous history. For example, there's a wonderful recorded lecture that Ann Shulgin gave about three years ago about the shadow and, and acknowledgement of and uh, participation with the shadow elements of psychedelic work and lots of other good stuff. Thank you so much for letting me do that. 
Peter, I think I'm going to turn this back over to you as our host to close the day. Well, Maria Victoria Mangini, thank you for a superb job conducted in a very orchestral fashion. That was fabulous. Um, thank you, everyone. I mean, that wraps up what has really been an amazing, amazing day. I mean, I'm just kind of moved to the core. Uh, the turnout's been fantastic. Everyone's responses to the sessions have been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I really have enjoyed these proceedings. And, you know, thanks to all of you on the panel today, John Buchanan, Diane Hogg, Tom Redlinger, Tom Roberts, and of course, Jasmine Verdi. You know, thank you for your very thoughtful, very moving accounts. Uh, also, our heartfelt thanks goes out to our friends at MAPS and Synergetic Press for bringing City Lights into their orbit for this remarkable and, and very historic moment. Uh, thanks to Rick Doblin and just for your untiring advocacy and to Deborah Parrish Snyder at Synergetic for all the wonderful books they continue to produce and just such an incredible list this year. Also to Sandy Balin, to Amanda Muller, Doug Rail, of course, Jasmine, um, for all their good work. Uh, and to our wonderful sponsors, we've got the California Institute of Integral Studies, TAM Integration, Psychedelic Seminars, the Esalen Institute. We've got the Psychedelic Society UK, Psychedelics Today, and Double Blind Magazine. This weekend's event was made possible by the support of the City Lights Foundation, carrying on the legacy of our late founder, Lawrence Ferlinghetti by encouraging deep literacy, critical thinking through the various publications and programs we produce. And of course, last but not least, City Lights would like to send our love and gratitude to Dr. Groff and his partner Brigitte for all the important work they have done and continue to do. We are grateful that Dr. Groff has been able to bring us all together in this way. I mean, this has been such a deeply moving and stimulating day. So. Thank you all for joining us. Please be safe, be well. We hope to see you all again soon. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.